between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the honor of being joined by Elon Hagens. Elon is a native Oregonian who has been playing in the woods, wild crafting, and going to outdoor education classes for her entire life. Her passion for everything animals and the outdoors led her to working intimately with dogs in her early 20s. Following that path landed her an opportunity to participate in a dog-based reality show on CBS and later work at an Iditarod dog sled kennel and training her dogs how to forage for native Oregon truffles further deepened her love for everything outdoors and led her to creating Temptress Truffles just a decade ago. Temptress Truffles is all about wild foraging, wild crafting, and connecting people to the outdoors. Elon loves watching people learn how to engage with nature in different ways besides technical outdoor sports and activities. She teaches classes in mushroom foraging, food justice, and nature crafting. In January of 2021, she co-founded a new business called Fruiting Bodies Collective. Through an excellent podcast show, a growing facilitator training program, and other projects, the Fruiting Bodies Collective hopes to destigmatize psychedelics and serve marginalized groups. All of Elon's projects seem to stem from her deep-rooted passion for sharing her lifelong love of everything outdoors and helping everybody, no matter their background, to appreciate the natural environment like she does. Elon, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you for having me. Well, the pleasure is all mine. We just gave from the intro tons of vivid stories that tell us what a fascinating journey you've had to where you are today. Uh, so why do we dive into it? I mean, you can start anywhere you want, whether it's with dog training or just a series of events that led you to Temptress Truffles. But tell us a little bit about that backstory to how you became such a mushroom forager and outdoors person. Well, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, good old Pacific Northwest with all of our types of weather. So here in Oregon, we have like the coast, we have the desert, we have mountains, especially in Portland. Um, we have tons of forests. And so when you're on in those kind of environments, you are able to, you know, see things in a different way compared to where if you were like, maybe in a warm weather climate all the time and or maybe you're like in the desert all the time when you live in these kind of regions it exposes you to not only a lot of rain which in fact you know we already know about rain and mushrooms <laughs> but it exposes you to a lot of like resilience and learning how to still have fun 
and those weather conditions that people may not always like appreciate during like maybe a cold wet spell or you're in a high desert and it's always hot all the time and like it's like dry and I'm used to pretty much all these climates because of where I'm at and um, as a little girl I uh, came from a single parent household and my mom had no exposure to uh, the northwest and like the outdoors and economically that wasn't going to happen at all like that was never going to happen um because she was always working and uh she was from louisiana and was grew up on a and was born on a sharecropper's farm so the one thing she did have really not the one thing one of the many things that she did have um good knowledge on was fresh natural really good food that like really resonated in me for all these years whenever i was like going to like any kind of outdoor school or event, no matter what, I could always lock those two together. The fact that, hey, my mom really appreciates natural stuff and vitamins and mm -hmm. stuff. And to, even though she doesn't have the exposure that I have, and then to the outdoors. And so um, she supported every little thing that I did when it came to the outdoors. And we all know the outdoors is like expensive as shit when it comes to like gear and like just anything camps like that stuff is so expensive like um it shouldn't be that's for sure Which, yeah it doesn't um, make sense but but... it is it doesn't make sense but people around me starting when i was really young knew that um i loved everything sciencey naturey outdoors and made sure that if there was like a scholarship available for me to go to like a science camp or anything pertaining like gardening or dogs or anything like that like people really like was like come on elon come with us come with us to the beach come with us here and and i'm like really good about like um being like the third wheel or tagging along or being that like other person within like a family or just with the uh, even within couples like i'm really good about being a third because I just really want to sit there. I'm a talkative person and I can talk a lot and people like when I talk, but I can actually sit there a lot and, and absorb, absorb and look and learn from the people that I'm around. And I love that part. And I do it in a way where, uh, where people told me I can just like sit in the corner and be not say unassuming, but I know how to fit in well in many places. Very and adaptable. I use that skill. Yeah, I'm very adaptable. And so people love to take me everywhere. And I was very fortunate that I had friends that and moms and community and teachers that really uplifted that. And the teachers and the moms that uh, uplifted me were also very heavily involved in environmental everything research con conservation one of my mentors slash teachers from when i was who picked me up and took me to the environmental school when i was younger when i was 11 yeah starting 11 she's like on the news like tied down to railroad tracks trying to stop oil coming from into that's amazing Portland, Oregon. and other ones like in haiti as a midwife doing like big stuff but like those are the type of um women i got exposed to and these are really good white women that I got exposed to. So I was really good for me to see that at that age, because right. it protects me from what I, what I'm exposed to now and what I've been exposed to by the not so good white people. If you may see, you know, I had, I had, I had some really good pe white people in my life, which was, I had a, such a great balance actually in Portland at the time. It was very diverse of the education I got, but fast forward the environment loving that nature hasn't stopped like and loving like 
me loving crafts and gardening and especially like crafts because you can do it alone. And I was kind of like the only child since my dad had uh, other kids, but we didn't, weren't in the same house. And then my mom's two other kids were 15 plus years older than I am. Mm. I was. So um, I really was kind of like a only child. I, I always say I love that. I'm really good for that loner life. Like I'm really social, but like the um, alone time that I have is where I do a lot of work. When I'm outdoors, I spend a lot of time alone. I mean, it's fun to have like friends and everything and socialize and come together. But honestly, I love to be in my own speed and always kind of have been. And when I'm, I'm, I do so many things. I'm so active that that is one of the few areas, the outdoors, the forest, nature, where I'm able to like just sit there and slow down. And I always use the outdoors and everything around me for, for that therapy, you know, and I've known that for, for my whole life, just in my blood and (laughs) I love it. So fast forward and I'm like involved with dog training, love dogs, got to be on a reality TV show on CBS that aired before Survivor, right when reality TV started coming out and like the early 2000s, but like 12 years ago about. And so I got this awesome experience and the support of people knowing me working with animals and being a good dog groomer and like having a good like outdoor doggy lifestyle. That's like what I back then like my dream and it's not a dream because it's something I'm doing right now, but I'm doing it with a bunch of extra fun things attached to it. But if you would ask me like, what was my dream job back then? I would have been like, I want to show or opportunity to just show me traveling around with dogs and like dog friendly, like vacations and like, I know hiking and, and, and literally it's slow. It's what I'm doing. Like you just not on TV like, yet. I'm not on TV yet. I did like that Danner um, campaign that like, that was like Elon's mind right there. And that was so cool. I better put a link to that in the show notes, but that was such a cool video with like the drone footage and you out in the wild working with the dogs. And that was one of my big questions is what came first? You know, we talk about truffles. Was it the love of dogs or mushrooms? And it sounded like dogs was there from like the beginning. Dogs is, was there from the beginning um, for sure, because that's what makes it fun to go out into the wild. That's what makes you feel for me, feel a little more secure when I'm, I'm alone, I'm really not alone. I always have an animal. If I'm alone, alone, it, like sometimes I've been alone without an animal. Ew. Like it's weird. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. It's just, I just, I, and it's something to care for and it keeps you on your routine and they give you like these markers no matter what. Like if I was in a place in my life and this is just for, not for everybody, but if you're in a place in your life or you need some kind of like I don't know, stability, I would say. And I'm not saying that's for, I'm like a really routine type of person. But if you love animals and you want stability, get a pet, get a fish, get something because you have to be there to feed them. You have to be responsible enough to pay for their, their vet bills. If you don't own a house and you need to get a rental, you need to have enough money to pay for extra stuff that it entails to get a pet friendly. When you travel, if you want to bring your dogs, there goes another $100 of whatever for you for boarding or for if it's fifty dollars for it's just it's privilege because it is privilege to have a dog um is raising a dog the right way where you're not gonna you know just take them out back and like 
get rid of them when they're sick, like back in the day. Now you actually, you have to take care of your animals because you're in trouble. So all this stuff costs money. And so when I was a little girl, I used to dream of having a dog, but couldn't afford it. Dream. Like it was my mission in life to have a dog. Like, uh, I just remember just sitting there. I had all these stuffed animals around me. I just draw pictures and stories about me frolicking with my dogs. Like I need I, I have these things written down as a little girl. So I was very focused on what was going to happen. <laughs> I was going to make that when it was, I was like, okay, now I have an apartment I'm moving and I'm going to have an apartment that takes dogs. And within this many months of me moving in to this apartment, I'm going to get a dog going to be a Yorkshire Terrier. Cause I really want a Yorkshire Terrier. I'm going to do all these things. We're going to be best friends. And it came, it, I made it happen, but yes, to have an animal and uh, it brings you closer to outdoor recreation because it's a dog is happiest in the outdoors when they're like, have a little job when they're chasing after a ball and they get, they pace when they're inside, when they're you're not getting exposed to like fresh air and nuisance and getting stimulated. We get all the stimulation. So to have a dog means you also have the responsibility taking them like out and stimulating them to make them the best that they can be as well as you. So that's so funny. This past year, we got a new puppy and I had never raised a puppy before. Oh God. And honestly, she was tearing stuff up and super like pent up and I would take her on walks. But the first time I took her mushroom foraging, we went out for like three hours. She was jumping over logs, mm-hmm. getting into everything. And we did that a couple times. And I swear it made her just like a better dog. Like yeah. she suddenly was more well-behaved. I have experienced the truth that you're laying out there. Get your dogs outdoors. A tired dog is a happy dog. My dog is not happy right now uh, these last three days. I mean, I think I might have posted something about because we went uh, camping last weekend and she's the most tired she'd ever been. And I'm like, hey, we got to get back to the real life. And I have to work. And when you have a working dog, I could literally work myself and exercise myself with my dog. I could work myself to skin and bones, which I am. But like I am small enough, but I could literally. (laughs) So when you get a certain breed of dog too. That's the thing. And so me having um, terriers and working dogs uh, really drove me into the environment and into the woods more because of the type of dog that I had, the dogs I had. So trouble hunting came naturally because I was already working with dogs. I did the reality TV show was around all these people who had made their whole career. A lot of them had made their careers out of their work with their animals. Like my animals yeah. were nothing. My dog, I, I should have gone on my Yorkie. My giant shells are gorgeous, beautiful. Everybody loves her. Nice dog. But if I really wanted to have like go for the money, I would have used my Yorkie any day of the week at that time because she was, uh, I've been around many dogs, like many dogs. And I know all, tons of personalities and I'm not being partial, but when she was at her finest, that dog, I was like, the hell, what are you? You're freaking amazing. Like you're like dock diving with the big dogs, climbing mountains, swimming, like finding truffles. Like I was like this little thing right here is, and she's 16, 17. She just hasn't stopped yet. So that shows you having that, um, that, support and seeing the people around you do work with their animals kind of like was like, Oh, when I got back to like, out of this, like, okay, I'm not going to like be doing TV shows right now. And on Alpo and all these like brands could have made that a career. Yeah. A bunch of my castmates do, they are branded and have been branded with a bunch of big companies. And that's like 
something you actively work towards and, uh, and you make yourself available for that. I make myself as unavailable for that as possible, honestly, <laughs> because like dog people are different. Training dogs is great. Training truffle dogs is great. That branding and la uh, that branding life, even though I'm like doing stuff with Danner and um, a couple other little things, I'm very intentional because it'll water who you are, who you are down. And uh, it's not about the things that you have and the companies behind you, unless they're really supporting you in projects like Danner did support me in that gorgeous, like, that's my life. Like I couldn't have represented my story better because I, I had to say so with the creative. It was like a promo video for Elon. Yeah. I, every part of it was like literally my friends, my dogs, my friends, dogs, my areas that I scouted and chose like that's It wasn't somebody just taking me somewhere and throwing on a freaking jacket. It was not that at yeah. all. It was very intentional the agency with Allie and Scott Wolf, they're amazing and they do such good stuff. And so I was so fortunate and I knew that they, I, I, it wasn't something I tried out for when you guys are like looking to work with, I have a lot of experience in, in all types of areas from psychedelics to reality shows to like just doing stuff and collaborating with other companies. And I, I always say like the number one thing is like actually like them, like actually use their product right. like that's a good start and you don't have to post a bunch of crap with their product and tag their stuff <laughs> on it that's not how you're going to get anything it's how you move in the world it's who you interact with that's how you can get some other types of like exposures and when i say exposures these exposures are great because it pays for my gas money so i can have more adventures i'm not trying to be like the whatever it's just like that's alignment when it's actually feeding into the activities you love doing not becoming this activity unto itself that takes away from all that yeah yeah it has to be very intentional that's how i am with everything like there's a company who i've loved forever like they're my number one dog outdoor company and I'm like, want to work with them. And obviously I have opportunity, nothing, obviously I have opportunities too, but the background that I have lends very well. It, it's a no brainer, but it's like, even though it's a no brainer, it's like, okay, what are we going to do besides take one picture for this many hundred dollars and with the products and just post it on your Instagram on, or in your website and use it content? Is there like a relationship? Is there support in the way that they're, like, okay, are you going to support me on this adventure? Because I need, I need to keep learning and I need more exposure. And I want to bring you guys on that adventure with me. And I think that's how we can work together more instead of me representing or getting a coupon code or whatever that people do. Like, um, that's not, that's not how the world works. That's an amazing perspective and really good commentary in this age of the influencer where kind of everyone in some way, shape or form is getting into that game or trying to get into that game. Companies are on the hunt to squeeze every last drop of kind of value and authenticity they can get by association, which I'm sure you get a lot of that. People reaching out like, oh, wow, we love who you're choosing to be, Elon, and what you're doing. We'd be happy to just squeeze that out for as much as we can. So yeah, good commentary to be intentional. Some really fantastic advice. Now, when you talk about training your dogs to find truffles, was that your introduction to mushrooms? Or how did you get into the world of fungi? 
Well, fungi has always been around for all of us. We like, we know we uh, biology for me was my strong strength in like everything like biology, like in science camps and stuff. So I've always known about fungi and molds and dog poop fuzzies and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> biology, taking biology in college and the after um, doing the whole dog thing, it just really strengthened my like interest for like not just like fungi but like uh other things that are surrounded because it's more than just you can't just get eat, just go right to the mushroom so at the time I was like okay let's now that I'm learning so much great stuff about mushrooms I love knitting why don't I start also learning more about like fiber spinning and fiber arts because you can die with these things and so when I started learning like that, you can use like mushrooms and things that you forage in more ways than just eating them or getting high off of them. That's when things really cracked open. And definitely when I found out that I could train the dogs that I had and other people's dogs that were around me to sniff out a specific type of truffle that I could promote within the state of Oregon, because we're one of the few states that have naturally growing truffles here that are good for culinary use. There's truffles on a lot of trees, but they're definitely, and I could like spout a whole bunch off, but also like pecan truffles in North Carolina. And there's a few other truffles that um, are good for, for culinary use. And there's truffles that you can find that are amazing to study and look at and are not poisonous, but they just don't taste that great or the texture is off and, but it doesn't mean they're right. poisonous. And so the ones that we have here um, are very specific. Like uh, for me, the ones that I go for um, are Doug fir or associated with the Doug fir tree. And we have a black and we have a white truffle here. And with our black truffles, we have really, really delicious black truffles here and they're found deeper in the soil um, and they will start their season starts about mm, october or november on a good rain year um, and then can go for through july on some years i've had truffles i've personally but people who have who are foraging for me have brought me some of those gorgeous truffles that i've ever had actually during the latter months of the season, which were I know, of a really good rainy um, year, um, I get some of the most pungent, great truffles that you got to use really quickly, but they're amazing. Um, and then we have white truffles here and those are great. They have some years where we have, you can't find black truffles and you're like, where are all these white truffles coming from? That's all I'm finding. And this year we didn't have, um, I didn't actually have that many white truffles. It was, it was a weird year. It was a dry year. And that's because I, my theory is that um, white truffles sit closer to the top, like let's say six, six inches of soil. So where the duff is, depending on how deep your duff is, but you're thinking pine needles broken down, nice, yummy compost. It's in that duff layer. And this year was a freaking dry and hot year. And so because the white truffles are hanging out in that, that layer, I think it really stopped that growth of them this year compared to before when it's like, they're like everywhere because it's raining constantly. And you're like, oh, you're like stumbling across them when you're like looking at a squirrel hole. But this was not the situation this year. But we've had some amazing seasons and that's just mother nature just doing its job saying, hey, it's you got to slow down this year. And maybe next year it rains, we'll have a good year. You know, it's every year is different, but that's definitely the truffles. 
definitely helped me get more and more into mushrooms and foraging and chanterelles and and morels and cauliflowers and oh my gosh and definitely more and more dye mushrooms and now I've had a chance to start learning a little bit about slime molds and like things that I, I, I my my eyes are like I have bad eyes but now I'm like oh look at it. I need a little macro little thingy now or I need a little magnifying glasses and I'm sitting there peeing in the woods on my log and I'm like looking now, that's where everybody finds their best mushrooms, by the way, is when you're peeing, when you're sitting. That's you're a peeing. rule of foraging. That's a rule of foraging. If you're not, especially for females, we find the best that way. But also you can find like the little things and see little slime molds and things that you may not like pay uh, attention to because usually everybody wants to see the biggest and the bestest and this. And and I, right. I, I, I like me a big, pretty mushroom. I'm well known for loving a big, gorgeous mushroom for a good old fashioned picture. Like, why not? It's beautiful. And nobody's seen it before you. And it's going to go rot probably really quickly. So why not? But sometimes <laughs> it's good to appreciate the little things that you might not only see when you're forced to slow down to go to the bathroom. Yeah. That's absolutely hilarious. And you you hit most of the basics, actually, that I wanted to lay out about truffles in the Pacific Northwest, because I think a lot of people already understand that that's really the area in the United States with the best edible tuber species that we all know and love. Uh, and you kind of hit basics on seasonality, kind of where they're located or their lifestyle. What are the basics on habitat that you're looking for when it comes to finding like an area that's good for truffles? Is there any rule of thumb for like age of the trees, species of trees, all that kind of thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I spent uh, years not knowing what these things were. And so uh, I say, here's the secret to truffle hunting. Learn the habitat. You don't, it doesn't matter the dog. It doesn't matter the age, the breed. If you have a Legato or if you have a Yorkshire Terrier or a lab who's trained to sniff them out, that does not matter. I had wonderful dogs and I spent tons of time and acres that of dug fir tree farms that were like aged at like 10 years, like tiny little babies. And I'm like, wow, why am I not finding truffles? And that's because truffles, like, I would say like the, my favorite age to start looking at trees for truffles, especially like when I talk about trees specifically, I'm talking about mostly a mono crop, like a, a planting, a stand, let's call it a stand. Because here in Oregon, there's been a lot, a lot of logging. Right. And so with a lot of logging, there's not a lot of mixed forest and old growth. I mean, that's all over the whole entire world. So Plantation we, forests, yeah. Yeah, plantation. And there's been tons of fires. And we've had so many big fires in some of those areas. A lot of the areas, it's like, well, we're going to plant a whole bunch of trees really quickly. And that's going to be our state tree, Doug Fir. And that's where the truffles associated with. And then same with, that's the Christmas tree. That's the type of tree we plant for Christmas trees and for our agriculture. So I love to go to Christmas tree farms. A lot of Christmas tree farms don't sell all their trees and they're generational or, or, you, or they get sold and there still might be like an acre of trees that haven't been worked or they're too big to get. Uh, they're not big enough for logging, but they're way too big for Christmas trees in your house. Those are the areas that I love to go to um, where it's like kind of dark and spooky and eight, the tree age would be about 20 years. That's when the tubers like to kind of start go, going on the roots. And when they, it, go, it can be earlier, it can be 15 years, but uh, 
I have like spent a lot of time in stands where I'm like, what are you doing? This is a great dog play date three hour drive away. Um, like, and so now I'm very like specific and people are getting more and more hip to, um, if their property has truffles, like they'll be like, Oh, I was out there and I saw a squirrel. I was digging on a squirrel hole. Now that's another way people dig truffles and people have dogs. I'm an advocate for dogs because dogs can smell ripe truffles. Now you can find truffles. Why? If you look at different signs, if you follow the drip line of a tree from where the branches kind of the water drips off and hits the ground and then comes inwards to the trunk, people like straight up, like will dig a circle around and, freaking dig it all up and find truffles that way. And those are- It doesn't sound great for the environment though. Yeah, exactly. And those are what's called raked truffles. And it's not, definitely not out in the wild and definitely not. Now, my thing with raked truffles aren't, it isn't necessarily because you're raking up the forest floor because I'm using a lot of private property and property that has is used for agriculture. And so, um, but if you are going out, just going out to explore a national forest or any of that, which I have done as well and do as well, you need to have dogs like point period blank. You need to for dogs only can really smell ripe truffles. So you're only going to be digging in that spot where the truffles are actually fruiting. And then it prolongs a longer season because you're not just digging up a bunch of tubers that aren't ripe just because you physically saw them and you like can kind of ripen them, which is, is arguable. You're using dogs and then, hey, maybe come back to that spot next week. And the ones that the dogs didn't hit on, which the dogs didn't, which were right under all your feet, uh, the dogs hit on this week. And, and that's like, that's good harvesting practices. But if you are going to rake, if you're going to go raking, I would say, here's the thing. Don't sell them because that is definitely changing the whole entire truffle. Like um, it's what's hurt the truffle reputation in Oregon because so many chefs have got raked truffles that aren't pungent and don't smell well. And that's why our truffles here are very inexpensive and we don't have like the whole folklore, but also that's once again, the dogs smell wonderful, ripe, beautiful truffles. They're not hurting the environment. And it, it, it's just keeping that quality thing. We're doing, we're trying to like get this quality thing over like just to have something and we need that. But if you are going to rake, it needs to be on a farm um, or some kind of private property where it's used for agriculture. And you need to be able to not sell it. I'm not saying you can't because obviously the, a lot of people, most of the, um, most of the truffles still in the market are raked. I'm guaranteed that because it's easy. And if you find a hit a spot and you're like out in the forest doing some forest work and like, you're like, whoa, this spot is a crap ton of truffles. I'm just going to rake them up while I'm out here really quickly. Cause I'm not going to be back here out here ever again. I just found 15 pounds or, you know, that's great. And, um, lucky and wonderful but also it like for me that doesn't that doesn't go with my business practices right and i just majority if it's going to be raked it needs to be very specifically from a private property it needs to be like not national forest uh they need to actually be like good like you can tell if they're like don't need to be on the market like i can (laughs) i can tell but like, just think about those kind of things. And yeah, if they're right, just if they're not great, don't sell them just because they're truffles. Just keep them for yourself. That's what I do. That's really interesting. That's an economic kind of dynamic 
that I wouldn't have thought of that if you're bringing lower quality truffles on the market, you're now kind of devaluing people like Elon's truffles who are like peak of freshness found by dogs, a consumer is equating those on the same level. And, you know, as much as you want to get into it, tell us a little bit about that economics of truffle selling. I mean, maybe it's really simple, but basically once you find a truffle, what is that like for supplying someone? I mean, who are your customers? What considerations do you have to take into account before you pass someone a truffle? And then how long is it usually before a kind of a fresh truffle you find actually makes it on someone's plate? Generally, the truffles that are going to my farmer's market have been picked within like, on average, I'd say three, four days, five extras. They're really, really good. They might make it to the next week of markets if I have a ton. Right. But that's like rare. Like I usually will process them to my products. I make products to sell at the markets and I sell to restaurants direct, but I do not have a, when I sell to restaurants or to anybody besides what I'm selling where the profit's a hundred percent mine, it's a very, once again, very intentional. I have to like the restaurant that I'm selling to because I'm not going to give anybody my great product just because they're a great restaurant. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, it's not worth it to me. No, if I don't like you, you're not going to get my, what me and my community <laughs> is hard. And that's just my business practices and people can, if that, that doesn't work out for everybody, but I am fortunate enough to like not have many needs and it's easy like the people, because if they're like doing some like harmful stuff, like the people that you are doing business with, it's going to trickle down. It's going to trickle down. It's going to come gonna rub off on you. It's going to run. And it's going to be like, oh yeah, that you sell to that. You're a great person. You're selling to that. Those people, you know, they did this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, holy crap. And so like, <laughs> you got to actually bet like the people who are giving you money or who want to give you money. So I sell, I have a little list of people who are interested in buying truffles, but I don't have it where it's like I have an order to place. I will never have an order to place. I will never have that stress. I will almost never do that with anything that I do in life that is creative like that. And so that goes the same with um, if chanterelles or or my morale season isn't great like this year and I don't have a big variety, I'm not necessarily going to go to a warehouse that does big bulk buying anymore unless I, there's like w- one person who I would do that right now. Maybe two people who I would do that bulk buying from because I know them and their business practices and they have a big, wonderful business. And I'm like, hell yeah, good for you. But with that being said, it also does, if there's like a little, there's, I just like to be able to support the people who I know. Like it goes back to that. Like if I don't have a shit ton of chanterelles that week, and the guy across the market has them because he decided to go to the warehouse. Who cares? Like I have other things and like, it's not going to kill me. <laughs> like it's not. A well, and you thing. still, you've still made your business sustainable, right? Even with implementing that kind of practice. So it's just nice to hear that that is possible. And you just brought up something too, that I think a lot of us, when we first start mushroom foraging, one of the number one questions you get asked when you tell anyone you mushroom forage is, oh, do you sell your mushrooms? And you've just highlighted this important aspect, which is networking. And yeah, sometimes people who are selling mushrooms to you at a farmer's market or to a restaurant didn't actually go out and pick those. They had a network of pickers. So you have to apply then that kind of discernment, even on anyone you're using as part of that network. Yeah. So it's interesting just to hear that you're and reassuring that you're able to still make that work with that level of kind of 
quality control or making sure that you trust all these different people in the supply chain, you're still able to make it a viable business. Yeah, it's not that serious. This is um, indigenous food we're talking about. And I don't like bringing, we always have a, a, it's not our land that most of us are, are like are harvesting on. And so we have this huge like competitive nature within food and all this stuff. And like, it's like this year chanterelles all of a sudden because it's a dry year are freaking $70 a pound at like some stores. And I'm like, absolutely not. Oh my God. Absolutely not. Cause obviously the people who are picking them can't afford to keep their own mushrooms, which I don't like that. I don't, like you don't feel yeah. good about it. It doesn't ring. So I'm not going to be buying mushrooms for $40 a pound to sell them for only 50 or I, there's this, there's a lot of stuff that happens like within buying and wholesaling and all that kind with any kind of product. But for me, um, I'm not, it's not a competitive thing and it's indigenous food and we need to remember that. And like, that's what I always like implement in the way I treat people and the relationships I have with my pickers. We have like real family life stuff to deal with. And like when I'm showing up at somebody's house and getting them out of bed at four or five in the morning because they just got home at 2 a.m. from driving for and picking mushrooms for, you know, 18 hours. And, and I'm like, Oh my God, I gotta be at the market. And I'm like, man, like we've known each other for all the, like it's a system. And I have to like, it, it humbles me. It humbles me. Cause there's times where I'm like getting at the market with like three minutes to spare with my product because somebody overslept, but only because they got in like an hour before from driving from practically Canada from picking. And, and if it was like, a, a big company, they'd be like, I can't have this anymore. You're making us late and I'm going to have to go with somebody else. And I'm like, you know what? I understand you're tired. You have mud. We're all dirty. We're like all like doing this together. You have to go to church too. After this, when you get up and your babies are outside, like that's how I, um, that's how I operate. And I, I hope to always like keep that like humbleness and keep that like community, like focus to like all the things I do and interact with and all the ways you can like interact with mushrooms, whether it be like the pickers, the people who die with mushrooms and who are like sheep farmers and shepherds to the people who are involved with psychedelics, especially there's so many different people in all of this. And we have to like learn to like, kind of like slow it down. I feel like right now and mm. like, remember like who's out there really picking our food and all of our food who work the lands and do, like always be like, I'm just happy to have this. I'm just right now. I'm like, I'm just happy that I'm allowed to do this. Like, this is great. Cause right now, if anybody is like, if, if all the tribe, all the tribal people said no more, get off all the forests. Like you are not allowed. I'm like, absolutely. I'm my ass is never going to pick another mushroom. Ever again. <laughs> yeah, and that's me. <laughs> Well, and that's like, you're talking about a business that is much more conscientious. We're almost thinking about like, what's the purpose of this? And I think more and more, we're kind of seeing that of like, why are we doing all this? We're we doing this to move things as fast as possible and kind of keep pushing product or are we trying to like implement a lifestyle, sustain ourselves and our communities, kind of leaving everyone more empowered. And I love that you just said that, like, what if we just slow down for a minute? It doesn't have to be cutthroat. Like, does it have to be really cutthroat or doesn't it have to be like, that's a really, and then you just brought up another massive topic, which I know so many foragers now are trying to reconcile, which is how do you develop this intimate relationship with wild foods and develop this relationship with the land that I say so much that isn't your land. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. How does, how does that show up? And for you, how does that show up in your practice? Maybe you just said it. Like if someone told me, don't do this, I won't like I defer, I check in with people whose land this is. Yeah. Like I, you check in, you check in and I don't know my, uh, exact at eth- my heritage i am like creole i have never done like a dna ancestry test or anything but i know that i am a mixed race and no matter what i like make sure to always always pass the mic pass the damn mic mm. to who you know who it belongs to anytime in life where you have the opportunity me as a black woman to to pass the mic you need to pass the mic and that's like for me as a light-skinned black woman saying like, hey, if I'm in a panel or if I'm anywhere, I'm going to pass it to a darker black woman. I'm going to step back and actually shut up and be like, you know what, right now, society, as we all know, has treated dark black women and black darker you are. There's colorism within our society, huge. We don't like talking about it. But that's who where I'm in panels and I've been like, man, I know the same thing as they do. And I want to talk about it too. And, you know, but, and I'm like, you know what, shut up. You know, you don't have to speak right now. You, you have your other times to speak. And right now you need to do nothing but sit back, support, uplift, support, 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 contact them, support. And, and I think that's what needs to happen. And also that's how you need to treat mushroom hunting and foraging as well. And especially like the business, like, okay, when I'm out here, I, even if you're not, I'm not saying you have to be around like people to, to uh, be around a race to uplift them. The people get very fucking confused about that. Sorry, my F bomb, <laughs> but people get, so they're like, I don't know any black people. I don't know any indigenous people. I don't know any marginalized people. Are you serious right now? You have this excuse for why you can't change is because you're not around the actual type of people. No, there are things that you can do that are so easy, that are so easy, that are thoughtless. And, and, and until you, I sometimes don't like to always say, do I have to tell everybody how to do everything? And that's just me being like smart, right. smart alecky and being a smart ass, but it's like, okay, you're buying things on Etsy. Like, how about you see if you can like change up your toilet paper order for your company to a business of colors? Cause th- like your staples in your household, like you're going to keep getting them. So those are certain things that you know, you're going to need all the time. So you can change who you buy from. It doesn't have to be everything, but you could be in the whitest town in America and you can still support. And it doesn't have to be always money. It's offering jobs. I always say, me getting opportunities, getting asked to be on podcasts, um, getting to speak. I had a conversation with somebody the other day and they said, I don't work within, in, I'm part of the community, but I don't work with the community. And I thought about that. I'm like, but damn, but I look at you like you've worked in the community, like you're doing great work. And I'm going to tell this person later on, I'm like, because I, I want to uplift this person. You got to lift, uplift yeah. people. And it's been on my mind. I'm like, I was thinking right then and there, I'm like, no, you just standing here in this white space, farming is like enough. Like you could literally do there and showing up every day is enough because people aren't used to seeing you in your position. So you don't have to be in your position and be doing other work in addition, because what you're doing is work that you're doing every single day when you're working as the only person in this space, (laughs) especially like in other certain types, every type of field, you're doing the work every day. And so you don't have to only 
reach out to that uh, community specifically, but you can help within so many different ways, like so many different ways. Well, and it's so intuitive, but it's something that I have heard. I don't want to say critique, but it's something I've heard critiqued of like, oh, you don't have to do this kind of performative action or you don't have to. And, you know, I think at the heart of this is having a base level understanding that there are different communities. We call them BIPOC. You can call them the black and brown community. Of course, the indigenous communities, even Asian American communities that were specifically brought here at a time when the morals were different to be on the lower rung of social strata. And that's something at the base level. And we all know that, but it's something we have to constantly remember of. And, and so if you had something interpersonally like that, like it wasn't a group of people, but you knew someone in your life who saw that had happened to, where they were brought into scenarios specifically to be kind of a lesser than class of person, you know, you would think I need to go out of my way. If I want them to be on the same footing I'm on, I need to go out of my way to like lift them up, maybe give some of what I have to them to equalize this. And so it's this area of contention and I don't want to politicize it. And honestly, I don't even love talking about this because you do such a better job of it in your guys' podcast, but it, <laughs> it's just something that I've had to go back and forth and having yeah. conversations with people about. And it doesn't always seem like they understand that very basic kind of compassionate thing. And so doing things like you're talking about, changing where you spend your money, choosing to pass the mic. That's a huge one. That's one I've struggled with. That's one I know a lot of people struggle with when you know something, but like you don't have to be the one to make that point. You can let someone else make that point in another way and, and kind of uplift that voice. Yeah. I mean, these are really, really powerful concepts we all need to be implementing. And I just don't like it when people hesitate because they see it as like, oh, well, now you're just basing it on race again. It's like, no, man, you get, get to the we all need to realize that we're uplifting people that in this country, in this culture, have historically been purposely pressed down. So if you're a compassionate human being, you will want to lift them up if that's what we want to do here. Yeah, it's like, it's it's like, it's it's every, I don't know, for me, it's just like anybody, it's like somebody on this, it doesn't matter if like, like if somebody has their arm cut off and they need help in the store in a region for something, you're like, right. you're rushing to go help them. Although in society that we... <laughs> we'll go back to like, who is still, there's people that it's still going to be the black and brown at the, at the bottom, no matter what they're going to, we, there's studies out there. Like there's studies. Too. Absolutely. Like it's, a, it's, it's, a it's ingrained in the cultural consciousness at this point. And, and, and we always want to remember, especially always bring it back for me. It's always in the outdoors as my whole entire life, people being like, Oh, what are you, you like the, you like nature, you like the environment. Why black people aren't supposed to like it. How did you get into this? I hear that so often. I'm like, what? I'm not, I was born in the same area and my, we went, your daughter went to the same schools. Why am I different? Why can't I like the same things? It's not that I can't. It's that number one representation doesn't exist. And then there's also like, safety in the outdoors that's like a topic we could speak on forever especially here in mm -hmm. oregon being like four percent black and going out in rural areas and people never haven't seen somebody brown in our entire life like literally and like there's that there's like having a privilege of having a car with gas money to travel if you're like going mushroom hunting it, it takes that i have friends who can only uh, mushroom hunt outside the city when they're getting a ride with somebody and 
for me, I'm not going to be giving everybody rice. I told you I like my peace and quiet in nature. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I just know, but I do. Sometimes I'm like, I need to be in my car on my own because it's my therapy. I don't need somebody in my need my nature time. I'll take the gas money by myself. But uh, you know, if there's a privilege into being able to access the outdoors that we always have to like remember over and over. And so that's why I'm probably here and, and always remember and doing a lot of these type of podcasts is because you don't see black and brown people represented and uplifted and outdoors historically until this last year. Now, now people are like, oh my gosh, where have you been? And I'm like, I've been here for a long ass time, but thank you right I've now. I've been in the woods. I've been in, number one, I've been in the woods, but number two, like I've been here and there's a lot of people out there who are marginalized, who are there out there just maybe because we move in a different way. We're not always speaking the loudest and need to be heard so much by everybody because that's not how we move. And also we sometimes aren't, it's like if you are speaking loud, somebody's always going to question, why do you know that? Or why are you in that spot? We deal with that a lot. Uh, Just having this conversation with the person who, um, working at the farm was dealing with that a lot like like you always we're always getting questioned I'm always getting questioned at my job at the farmer's market people are always trying to come up to me and throw down some mycology lingo and words to me which is great because I can get lazy with like my identification but these older white men keep me on my toes uh with the coming at the market coming at me asking me what who I know who don't I know have I seen this and that because they expect me to not know anything and that's what I deal with a lot, which is like great because I um, am a really kind person and I like um, love changing people's opinion about what they expect. And I do it in a way that's like, I'm really good at conversation. I'm really good at communicating, but every once in a while, there's some people who like, you can't even waste your time with. And I definitely had a few of those people in this past year, especially people have been really triggered. So they like to take it out on me sometimes because I'm like, can't run away when I'm at my job and uh, about their opinions about the me uh, exposing people to their spots in the woods and the forest. And I'm like, this ain't because uh, they own the land. Yeah. Cause they've been, they've had the privilege of going hunting or whatnot and foraging in this one spot for 40 years. And now there's all these city folks that people like you uh, teach uh, people how to hunt mushrooms. And now they're in my spot. So I entertain people and say, well, now, you know, if people don't realize that they, how to treat the environment, if you don't expose them to it, I used to do that. And I still do that. I give them about three minutes of that until I have to be back into like the, okay, like you're not, you're still coming at me and I'm going to have to like get a little more tough with you and explain some things to you and who I am and what I do. And my number one thing that I do is like teach people how to respect the forest, teach people how to respect the outdoors how to love it. And if you don't, if you're not going to, you're not going to treat something bad that you've learned to like love like that hard, like me. <laughs> That's at the heart. I think why so many people love to teach about foraging and so many people get interested in mushroom foraging and see it as like a solution in so many ways as it does seem to instill in people, this love of nature and wanting to care and understand how it all works. And just like get someone into mushrooms on the other end comes out this person who's like way more conscious about their environment and about ecology. And you just brought up a mushroom elitism, a mycology elitism (laughs) that I think, I mean, much less add in like racial overtones to it, but just in general, 
people who have been mushroom people for a long time interested in it or just hunting them. They feel like they've just had all these new people on the scene trying to encroach on their territory, trying to, and it's this weird dynamic that people are just going to have to get the fuck over because mushrooms are fungi are a whole kingdom of organisms. Every human being is good to mediate our own relationship with these organisms. You're not the king of it. You're not the, you don't, uh, uh, you don't distribute the right to have knowledge or a passion about something. Uh, and it's something I'm seeing, I, I'm seeing it change a lot, but there is that dynamic present. But like I said, much less throw in like the racial overtones of an old white man coming up to a younger person of color and saying, you shouldn't be doing my things. Like, man, <laughs> you, that that old white man has to know that just looks wrong. Like, you got to know that at this point. He didn't care. He literally, they don't, they don't care, which is the craziest thing about it. And it's like some people, you just have to like be like, okay, on with the next and hope I don't ever run into you. And I'm going to. Didn't the mushrooms teach you compassion? Didn't the mushrooms teach no. you basic compassion at this point? No, they, it, no, it, apparently it, it doesn't teach everybody. You can't. You can't teach everybody. I've learned, the, and it's not the pick your battles thing. It's just like, okay, on with the next, because I got stuff to do. I got, I got, yeah. I got cool people. Stop talking with me right now because I have cool people to interact with. And you're every moment that you're that I've tried and I'm wasting. You're taking away moments of me like having cool moments, and I I'm all about like having fun. So I'm like, okay, bye bye. And I'm like, because people know no matter what, I'm going to like get on with it and like, I'll blank stare somebody. <laughs> my wife always likes to say change scene, like cut, I'm done with yeah. this. I'm going on to the rest of my movie right now. I'm not, I'm not doing this. And you're the perfect kind of person who I'm sure has done plenty of judo moves when people come at you to either hit them with something unexpected or educate them on why what you're doing is so valuable. Um, but in, is this whole thing we've been talking about, is that changing? I mean, are you seeing more and more now? people of color embracing or, or I don't want to say reclaiming because there's nothing to reclaim, there's a, there's a but people of color being more comfortable in the outdoors and getting this healing therapy that you've received and that everybody receives. Is that been like coming back in, in reinfusing into that culture? Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole culture um, with, I'll say with the, I, my experience is obviously black culture with black people and that is absolutely happening because when you're with a society that's trying to tell you, you need to be clean, this, have your hair a certain way, not dirty. Because in the past, everything in the past is like a, a, the association to dirt is association with being uneducated, bad, and like low class. And there's all these things. A lot of our, my people have been like, what the hell? Like, it's not just because of the dirtiness and like having to be something. It's also the detachment to land because land is valuable. People don't think about it, like, if you think something is like icky, gross, you're also not gonna want it and then come in and swoop and get it. There's a part of that. There's so many mm. layers, there's so many layers. And we don't rare, we rarely talk about that within the history of all, all of like reclaiming, um, like intentional cultural programming to make you not necessarily want a thing that in this system is like the most valuable asset. Yeah. yeah and we deal with that here uh, specifically in Oregon because Oregon is a huge red line state and black people were simply not allowed to be in neighborhoods over certain hour, at certain hours own land until really late in history here. And like, I'm, I'm not saying like 1800s y'all I'm saying like into the 19s, like well into many, yeah. many reasons, like 
like, like yes, like and there are state and cities who are still redlining ish, who are scared that Antifa's coming on a on a bus with black people to their town to stir shit up. Like that doesn't people are still out there like that. And so um, when you're getting a detached from your land or just watching somebody's land for them after a while, you like, I don't need it. And then now it's like, okay, there's a huge like black plant, like love, like indoor plant, like a movement that's going on and it's so beautiful and I love it. And that's something that's like, for me, when I'm like thinking of my association with like black culture and just like, I think about so many plants in our homes and like, I know there's white, white people have plants too, but like a lot of us like are so huge. My mom and some people go to houses, there's plants, there's associations and showing us caring for land in different ways. Like we are caring for land and so, and maybe not a plot, but so much in our house plant and that, and that's like, what people are like really getting attached to and that's leading, helping lead back into like black farming, black land, helping not only land back with indigenous land, but land giving land obviously to people who are brought here to work the land. And in addition, and uh, I'm loving this and I've done like some stuff at like black growers gatherings and conferences and have been in the food justice space for a long time now as part of my work, uh, teaching food justice and, and access to great quality indigenous food and economics that hit, that is a big part of my teaching and my job and, um, the panels and the stuff that I do for work. And so, um, that it's so good right now. I'm, I'm loving this movement that's happening. It's, I couldn't have come anytime sooner. And my mom uh, definitely had some play in that with her loving healthy foods and being on a sharecropper's farm. And back then there was a whole thing with black people getting bad spoiled meat um, delivered to black towns where people were getting sick and dying. And so there are certain things that also shape her healthy eating where it was actual safety. And so these are mm. so much that um, carries on with everything that I do with uh, destigmatizing outdoor, with access and food justice and like being able to move in the outdoors and why we're not and why we're trying to still get land because some of us never had the opportunity. Um, first generation Oregonian. And I know anybody who's black Oregonian before me, I'm in my late thirties, but yeah, it's not, it's not an easy, it's not an easy road in, in America for land ownership for anybody, but especially if you're a person of color and especially if you're, black in these rural areas. Um, yeah, for sure. I'm just thinking of a study I know was done uh, my day job. I'm an accountant and I was talking with a woman who runs a bank here in Northern California. She's a bank manager and she was talking about how they had to set up these fair lending boards to judge how how big lenders, big national banks were treating applicants. Now they could only kind of have jurisdiction over this certain area where their committee was, mm -hmm. but they basically do tests to see how applicants were treated when someone walked into a bank to try to get a loan for a house or just, you know, to try to purchase land, uh, which can be a little different because banks don't always like to lend on land. But anyway, the, the bottom line was they sent in actors that were European American white family. It was a much easier process than when they sent in the actors who were you know, a black family yeah. into this scenario, they got denied, they got worse terms. Like it was just on the, where the rubber meets the road on that bank, actually making the loan, the skin color was a determining factor. It is. And so if that's still the case, 
that is the the ground you want to talk about equality people having the same access to land ownership and the ability to go out into nature it doesn't get more fundamental than that so supporting efforts like that would seem to be a no-brainer support for those, those of us that do want equality. Yeah, support those. Take your take your black friends out to your secret spots. Take all your friends out to your secret spots because they ain't your secret spots. Uh, it's obviously um, you're not going to take everybody to a spot that's special and important to you. You do want to keep it close and safe to you because not everybody will will treat your spots as well as you do. But um, also, if there's people who are willing to share their one of their spots with you or something in their life with you or or bag of cookies or something like give it up like give it up there's a lady who contacted me the other day um through instagram who's been watching some of my exploits and pigment i'm a i'm now a, a wild pigment forager and harvester and been harvesting wild clays and mud dyeing and all my other um, nature arts but i had a potter um asked me hey do you mind telling me where you got your mud from? And I, for the first time ever, I was like, what? You're asking me to tell my spot off the side of the public highway that you can, anybody <laughs> can see if they're driving by it. And right, I, right. it has four colors and it's like a cut millions and millions. Of, like there's all this like thing at first. And then I'm like, honey, I don't, and I, I was like, Elon, pump your brakes. First of all, you know nothing about pottery at all. Like you are in this experimenting. <laughs> you haven't paid for a single class online or a Patreon of nobody. You ain't giving nobody a dime of your money to learn about this, except for what you studied, which is like indigenous, like pottery and stuff that I've personally like researched, but I've never like had any skills. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to. And it's not, sometimes you can be transparent with people and say, Hey, I want to learn this. And I don't know about this. I do this. Would you be interested in learning about this? Or I have this spot out there that I really wanted to look at and see mushrooms, but I, and I know you don't know it, but could you help me go to this spot? Cause it's not uh, your spot. So if you both find, if you go to that person's spot and you find a bunch of mushrooms, it's y'all spot together and you get to learn together. Right. And so with the clay, same thing. I'm like, you know, what? I don't know the GPS coordinates, but I have a ton of clay right here and color pigments. If you want it, like before I go back to this region, like I have ton to give to you. And if you want the coordinates, I'll get definitely give them to you. And this uh, woman was so excited. She showed me her account and her account is like the most beautiful little, oh my gosh, the pottery is really good. And uh, she's like, thank you so much. People are really, she goes, I was scared to ask you because people are really stingy and artists are really keep to themselves and they don't like to share anything. She goes, I love what I do and I just want to share it with everybody. And I love, you've already shared so much on your platform and I owe you. And I'm like, what? You owe me nothing. Like, but we are going, I'm going to learn about pottery and I'm going to share my foraging spots with her. And she's going to know that this could maybe be our cut that for the next till we're a hundred years old, we could literally work this cut till we're like, definitely we can't go through it. So I don't know why I need to be stingy because it's dirt. And it ain't why you're protecting it. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's literal, it's beautiful ochre, um, iron ochre. But that being said, it, it, it's like, these are kind of things that I'm like, this, that's how I keep saying, like, turn it over because next thing you know, it, I'm we're going to, I might have a great friend to like Skillshare. I have a great friend now to Skillshare with and we're sharing accounts. I haven't even met this person. They live locally. So the, 
we'll see. We're like dating through art and mud and foraging online now. This is awesome. This is super awesome. I really appreciate you sharing that story. It's illustrative of everything we've been talking about. And I think it blows out of the water this hesitancy anyone has where it's like, oh, you know, passing the mic or supporting someone else by giving something up that you treasure to uplift them isn't restricted to just kind of European and white American community. Like you're doing it for other people. This is a universal concept. And we can apply this in all facets, whether it's finding clay, whether it's finding mushrooms, whether it's supporting someone economically. And I love that vision where people are kind of mutually uplifting each other like that. And I, yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing that. And it's inspiring, kind of a, a good call reminder for all of us that we can do that and it doesn't cost us anything. We think it's going to. We think it's going to cost mm -hmm. us. I mean, in your case, literally probably an infinite amount of clay, but but almost in any scenario, you know, like it's not going to cost you anything. Yeah. And maybe, maybe if you're an introvert, it's hard to go like, oh, if you're going to meet in real life, you're like, oh my God, I'm meeting a stranger online, blah, blah, Another blah. Another human. Especially after COVID. But honestly, it's like, no, because there is healing within art. There is healing in without doors. We need to do it together. You, we know, we know studies show that there's, there's healing within community and growing that community. And that's the same. And I, that ethics that I've had has led into like fruiting bodies and the psychedelics um, and doing a facilitator educational training course that is like a collective and other people learning like that part of my work. It's, separate from Timter's truffles. I always say that because it really is because it's, it's political and it's grittier in a different way. The things that I always preach or whatever or talk about, they, they go over everything. And it's all about like doing what makes you happy. Um, because if you're doing something that makes you happy, there's like healing in those moments. And like, even if it's like something like your those endorphins and all those good feelings are coming when you're like watching like a a stupid reality TV show with a girl and her dog yelling and with banjos playing in the background. But those are like the things that make you happy. And you need to like have more of those and you need to share more of those. And those are healing moments. And uh, with psychedelics, um, there's so much more with than just the actual like mushroom what we always talk about we're like okay that's great somebody can go get like a healing session or journey and then they're gonna come back home to what do they have support do they have a great house to live in do are they gonna continue to uh just do these little tiny little sessions away and not everything else that supports that healing which for me is the outdoors and being with my dogs and being around uh, people who are newer in my life, I'd say in the last three years, who see like me from a, a different angle than the people who knew me for a, a long time. Like it's good to have people in your life who have known you for years who can appreciate your growth. And there's good. Time. It's good to have people in your life who haven't also seen you when you you had those times when you were struggling because. They don't look at you with some time. They look at you with a different uh, perspective. You can be somebody else. Yeah. And it's fresh and it's good to have those. And I have a lot of those people around in my life because I've had uh, grieving and heavy, heavy grief in my life. So sometimes it's nice. I've had these fresh faces in my life and I'm like, oh, I don't usually like new people like this. But I'm like, they don't see that part of me 
that when I like go away in my at night or by myself in my camper, where I'm like, Yvonne, you're having a moment. They don't think I'm having those moments. And it's nice to have people, a, a mix of those people around you, honestly, in your life. And that's part of healing, learning what works for you. That's something huge because I think I forget who it was that said you are kind of the collective of what people see you as sometimes. So having those different perspectives can really be empowering, give you a chance. Yeah, to leave like, oh, you don't know that trauma. I don't have to be in that right now. Or I don't have we don't have to have that in between how we're connecting. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. But tell us about Fruiting Bodies too. Yeah. Uh, how, however much you want to, because it is a podcast on this theme of elevating. Obviously, I want to elevate you guys and the issues you talk about. And just you know, tell us about maybe how that came about and, and what you're doing right now with that project. Yeah, with that project right now, at first we started with just, hey, now 109, our measure here in Oregon passed to legalize psilocybin within the next two years. So I'm like, whoa, so this is an underground now. So uh, people are now like all of a sudden asking me all these things and questions about mushrooms. And a lot of people think they know everything all of a sudden about everything mushrooms. And I'm like, where the heck did you come from? And I'm like, right. whoa, this is getting a little bit cannabis-y to me and I don't like it. And my friend didn't like it either. And so we were kept getting um, asked so many questions. We learned there's a lot of misinformation about decriminalization and also legalization. And then we wanted to make sure that people were operating in a safe way and not thinking, hey, now that this passed that, hey, psilocybin is legal and you just have it all over the place because there's people out there who are going to be doing some healing in a state that might get them in jail for a long time. And that's just the truth of the matter is that white people have the privilege. You see the, that psychedelics is, is, that's a problem with, one of the problems with psychedelics becoming legal is that it's making a plant medicine that historically it wasn't really high on like priority of things getting, you know, arrests and stuff, but like, it's not crack. It's not crack being legal. Right. It's not what's affecting a lot of marginalized community. It's still a pretty jug and we're still choosing what to legalize. So that being said, Ooh, um, yeah. we're like, and it's really hard when we get into that icky, sticky stuff. And that's part of like what I have to do in this work and this moment of my life. But, and it's uncomfortable, it's comfortable, really uncomfortable for me too. But with that being said, with it being uncomfortable, I'm like, oh my gosh, now that this is here, how are we going to make it? How am I going to impact it? How is my partner, Becca, with Rooting Bodies going to impact this now industry that people are going to be involved in, in a way where... We can say, hey, hold on, this ain't just weed. You like need to know that this is medical, or not medical, I'm using it very loosely. This was passed for healing purposes, not recreational. There ain't gonna be gummies out in the streets and stores and all that kind of stuff. This is geared right. to a healing path or just for self-growth, honestly. Um, and so that is what this measure is supporting. And so with that happening, there are other steps. Like also, like I said, go back to, okay, now that this is going to be something that is going to be above ground, are people getting arrested still for the same thing and thrown in jail with the war on drugs? That's like something that we have to like get into when it comes to above ground. And so those are things in our podcast, uh, Fruiting Bodies Collective podcast that we addressed and that we lift up different voices within the community. Some who have experience in psychedelics. A lot of people don't. And that's what I prefer 
because that's who needs uh, everybody who's not involved in psychedelics or in um, any kind of like plant medicine based healing is who we need to interact with um, because it's less sticky. And also um, it's easier to educate people um, who have no information compared to reprogramming. And mm. so why not start with a collective who's giving out good social justice type of information, who is now we are creating a facilitator training program and course where people can get certified, whether they want to use the underground or eventually, hopefully with the state of Oregon. These are tools that we are giving out because so many people, um, came to us and we're like, you need to do this. And we keep asking you guys the same questions over and over. And one of the things is people want to have people who are marginalized to be able to hold space for them. And with a lot of the programs rolling out in a lot of different trainings and schools and programs, there's not a lot of an emphasis on the social justice part and people who are going to be able, what are you going to do if you're holding space for somebody who, who, has racial trauma or is there anybody out there to hold space for that person who has racial trauma? And, and our, my thing was right now, I know one, not one single person, me personally, Lon Hagens doesn't know anybody right now, maybe now, but come around when I first started to I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to go to them because I know they're going to have a space that's safe for me to learn in and that I can grow in and that the people around me are continuing to grow and more than just, hey, let's be cool and have this cool psychedelic thing and grow some mushrooms and be this ego person shaman cult thing. Like this is oh, a, like a collective of information and what our and what community needs. And we're doing a fundraiser right now. And we've got some really good like beginning uh, little dollars from a few different companies. And this educational program that's coming out, we're like it's going to be happening sooner than later. And so uh, we're like in it and, and all the board meetings and love for everybody to like constantly with any of the states that are passing any kind of measures or anything to do with anything. I don't care if it's, I don't care what it's in. If you want to be involved in it, you can be involved in it at a minimal. And the minimal is you can listen to a meeting that's recorded and uh, you don't have to like be in it. Because I know sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, that's how I am when I I want change to happen. I'm like, oh, I want change to happen, but man, I don't want to spend all the time doing this. And I don't want to act a certain kind of way. You can keep your identity and still make an impact or find somebody who will speak for you, whose voice that you trust, which is nice because that's what we are doing. We're taking people's uh, information and um, concerns and feeding that back into not saying a higher level, a different type of level um, compared to like the previous underground um, level. And that's what we're doing with, I feel like right now with everything within mycology and mushrooms, it's like, hey, you don't have to be a doctor who's gone to this university and knows all about everything in order to like be respected as a mycologist. And that's what was weird for me. I was like, People call me sometimes mycologist. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not a mycologist. Like, get it straight. I am a mushroom educator. I am a mycoeducator. I am an outdoor lover, a nature educator. But did I go to school and get the degree for mycology? But then people are amateur mycologists. And I, do, I don't mind that title at all because 
I, I don't, I don't think it's amateur. I just think it's like, it's, it, it's all these posturing type of words and privileged type of words that people like say, I'm a mycologist. Not that your great granny don't know more about hunting mushrooms than you do. And all of us put together, come on now, <laughs> let's be real. Let's be real. Well, and the people you talk to are like the highest level mycologists. They've like been to that mountaintop. They're the first to be like, whoa, I'm not an expert. There are amateurs in the field that like know more than I do yeah. about different things. So yeah, we can, again, throw some of that mycological elitism out of the window, I think is probably the most productive. And it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of the same work that you have really done through your whole life, yeah. kind of tentress truffles, but just taking people out in the outdoors. It's kind of showing representation, getting historically marginalized groups in the US to engage in activities that have for whatever reason and the stuff you guys talk about on the podcast in much more depth have been cut off from that could really help. And psychedelics is just another one of those areas. Another so one. for you, that work has channeled through to fruiting bodies where you're showing people, Hey, this has been packaged for one culture and has been kind of kept, but this actually can be a healing tool for groups, marginalized groups in the U S that really have the most trauma, generational epigenetic trauma to go through. And of course, they would need a space facilitated by people who can relate to and understand that. Absolutely. Like that's, that's what it comes down to. And it's like, like you just said, once again, echoing, it's like, it's across all spaces. It is across all spaces, showing representation and show, and just like getting out there and like coming together. And it's like hard, but like, yeah, I say a lot of times, like healing isn't just for one type of, people and unfortunately in our society only one type of people is allowed to heal and so um and allowed to even be artists allowed to mm -hmm. recreate allowed to have a vacation like be leisure and, and that's something within it's hard too within certain cultures we're like we're so used to working all the time it's hard to be leisure and then it's hard to be like, oh, I deserve a vacation because when you want to work so hard and like, oh, I need to just hang out in the woods just because I can and I I want to be out here and scratch at the wood and, you know, do all my things. Like some people don't know that that's there. And so that's like one of our biggest things is showing that that's there. Yeah. And even going across then that socioeconomic boundary that kind of limits a lot of those decisions. And it's it's really powerful stuff. And I've heard you say it before. I just want to make that caveat that in no way are we kind of generalizing any marginalized group as one kind of amorphous, all want the same thing. Like these are all individual people. Everyone's healing looks different. Absolutely. But it's nice that you're creating a safe space for people to find that way that may be more safe, more inclusive, more comfortable. And another caveat I want to make as we've been talking is, of course, we're not speaking for any indigenous groups, but I love that you did point out that that's kind of the, you know, when it comes to dealing with these issues and being inclusive, that is kind of the group that we in this country have to defer to the most because they were the people whose land this was. And I'm sure that that's something that you guys are trying to get into the psychedelic community as well. And it's not something I've seen talked about as much, which is indigenous use of psychedelics and who are these substances like yeah who should we defer to about use of these substances and practice and ritual and all that kind of thing i'm sure builds into that absolutely like that is right there that's it and to be honest it's really hard to find people 
who are marginalized to want to participate in spaces that have been harmful. And right. that is a huge thing. And it's like, you're going to go in these spaces with people who are going to sell you your own medicine back to you. And that's part of the, that's my struggle. I'm like, I already say I'm like, yes, I'm above ground, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm above ground because it, it's, it's a really hard spot for us to be. And it's a, and it's a triggering spot for a lot of people, including yep. me, because it's like, yeah, why are you going to go? Why do we need, where are all the dishes people is what a lot of people say. And I'm like, well, to be honest with you, like, that's why, like, you don't want to go. And, and then there's also like stigmatization with drugs in a lot of our cultures. Like, it, it, we didn't talk about that like black culture and like not being on drugs and church involvement and a lot of stuff is is anti 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 plant medicine anti any type of that and there's so many layers to that so many layers to that but a lot of it is like why do you need to be above ground sometimes and like dealing with the people in a space that you know you're gonna get hurt in um that's one thing that we are working on right now because we notice nobody is putting it, is prioritizing indigenous voice right now in psychedelics. And I'm just, like I said, I'm just making my own assumptions of why it is a difficult if I was in that position on top of like, like I said, it's just coming from a black person's perspective and knowing like there's like alcoholism, there's, certain things there's and it's still a drug a federal drug and everywhere most everywhere so we're still a very small group right now uh, what we're doing here in Oregon is still very like far-fetched and like craziness to majority yeah. of the people and so and I'm like that person and I am that voice that is constantly saying like yeah you guys know this person this person this person I've talked to every group here and that and psychedelics but that's a circle that's in a little tiny pot that's really small. And then there's the rest of the world and how, how we think and different cultures think and stuff. And so um, I bring that up quite often. And that's my job specifically. And I've made it, taken my, it on to myself. Well, and it takes, and again, I'm not in that position, but just from the outside looking in, like it takes a lot of bravery to put yourself in that position, to hold the space, to try to elevate these concepts and be as inclusive as possible and all the while take shots from people who, you know, it's not meeting, especially, you know, when you talk about kind of the underground of things, there are going to be aspects of engaging with any of our lovely European hierarchical kind of male dominated structures in place. Whenever you have to deal with that, it gets ugly and you yeah. end up having to translate your thoughts and what you want done into that system hopefully to then ripple out change that will kind of topple that over. But there's also this aspect of the communities you want to be really inclusive to, and you're trying to create this space for may not want to engage. And that's their prerogative. Like I said, that European hierarchical male dominator structure hasn't done anything good. Why would I want to like go engage with it at all? Yeah. Uh, so for you guys to kind of set up space and say, Hey, here's what we're trying to do. We encourage every, I mean, some of it is you're going to, have people not even want to be part of it. And like, you kind of have to be okay with that. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Everybody has a choice. Like uh, everybody has a choice in how they move and what they want to do. Definitely how I always have moved in life is like, Hey, I'm a really good space holder. 
Like if you're around me and my immediate community or my presence, like it's a safe space and it doesn't matter if you're know, black, white, queer, anything. And I'm like, not saying I'm like perfect. And cause I'm always like, I need to learn. I effed up. I eff up all the time. And I, as, as a black woman, once again, don't want to have to be the only one holding, um, the space for all people who are marginalized. So that's a, something that we talk about a lot. And so mm -hmm. I'm always like, yes, you can come here, but I'm coming here. But when I, you come to me, I'm going to come here. I'm going to give you some tools. I'm going to uplift you. I'm going to be like, now spread. There needs to be like a million of it, all of us. Right. And we need to keep on going. Right. Like, and we talk about, I was like, man, if there's any like indigenous people, anybody who is tribal, anybody who cares or is allies who want to be involved specifically in that area, we're like, come here because we, I don't want it to be where it's uh, a lot of times in our world, we have a lot of um, people who are like of privilege and they're like, I have this money. So I'm going to start this organization for this group. And, and then they're like, why am I not getting anybody from this group coming here? Why aren't people coming to me? I'm like, okay, because there's a lot of people out there. It's a very, feels like self-serving type of thing. And instead of you starting a thing to support a group that you may never have any, I'm not saying you may not have any doing with, but how about you use your resources and your mental support to support people who are in there who are already doing the work? Because that's where, who and they know a lot more and have been doing the work forever, but haven't been uplifted. It's, this is always coming back yeah. to uplifting people, no matter what, it's coming back to that. Everything we're doing, like think of, like that's, I guess the message, like up with, see if you can support somebody. Yes, sometimes it's uncomfortable. Yes, sometimes people are a pain in your ass and they deliver messages in ways where you wouldn't necessarily deliver them, but you hear it and like we're allowed to all move differently. And I think that's what it comes to. And once again, uplifting, allowing people to move differently and uplifting and going to the space where people are going to support you and your ideas because they don't necessarily have to do them for you. I, I could invent or make up like a thousand like different organization, little boards for, you know, queer, for people who are like, si who have size, oh my gosh, size, age, like I can name. Well, and it's being wary that you don't have these big institutions that take on that marketing perspective. Like, oh, we can appeal to each of these groups and we'll use our money to set it up. Yeah, and no, it needs to be the people within. And so that's why sometimes like people are like, oh, I don't see any representation in this. And I'm like, there's a reason, like I said, but there's a reason why. And it's hard because sometimes I like, even like my friends who are indigenous, I've been like, drop a DM, like, Hey, there's all this work that you could do it. <laughs> do you want to do it for your people for free? Cause that's what we're doing right now. And so uh, it's hard to get people to, to get out and into those spots, unless you're paying them reparations because they, you, we go in these spots knowing we're doing free work. And that's how we're going to get things changed. Uplifting, paying. And yes, it does come down to money because you it, it does. It, it, it does. Because if you're the only one who's an expert or in that spot, 
you're going to be constantly educating everybody around you and yourself, unfortunately. And you're, you need to get paid for the harm that's going to come on you as well. And that's the imperfect system that we have to recompensate people. That's how we settle. Like I said, when it's interpersonal, when you wrong someone, usually it's kind of a monetary thing. Yeah. I mean, through this whole conversation, it's about upliftment and empowerment. And I hope it's also a call to people to just make sure we're guided by conscience. Because a lot of these things, when you break it down, are really simple. What the right move is, is to be guided by your conscience and recompense those people that have been wronged by the culture that has not wronged you, right? Like that's what your conscience would tell you to do in any situation. And I also want to throw out the caveats just because I think they're important. Not that we've necessarily gone across any line, but like we know that indigenous traditions Absolutely. speak for themselves. They're living, they're alive and well. They choose, you know, it's totally up to that community who to engage with and why. And I also want to throw out that you didn't have to come on my show and give out this, I mean, free work of educating me as someone who's a European American, as educating anyone who's listening on these topics and how we can be more inclusive and empowering because you've given us some real tangible tools and shared a perspective that I didn't have. Uh, and I just really appreciate you coming on and, and doing that work. Yeah, like I, any, you know, I, I don't mind at all. I, like I said, you have to, <laughs> you have to like vet people. So it's not like I didn't look at how you were moving within the community <laughs> before I <laughs> engaged on this show. And that just shows like, it's like, I see how you interact with people. So that's how we have to move in life. And it's not because we're being like rude or mean. It's because we want to make sure that we're uplifting the right people. That if I came on here, I've been on, um, different podcasts where I was not supported at all. And it was gross and lives where I was felt like very harmed in a situation. And when those, it only takes like a couple of times for those happen before you like, okay, like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to see who this person has interacted with. And even if you only had two interviews or one under your belt, right. I would just see how you are, just see the commonality or feel the vibes out. Think about it a moment, you know, all those things that you kind of have to do. And it sounds like I come from a place of caution and being very like cautious. And I really, I am a cautious person, but I'm also like a really big, open, loving, loving <laughs> person. It's not all about like caution and healing and this and that. Cause like, I think that's like 15% of me, 20% of me, other, other like part of me is like literally making nature art hiking and doing all like the really fun stuff that you have to do in order to stay sane when you're doing the hard work I delve even harder and I manifest my art and like things I love even harder right now in a OCD kind of way because I'm doing all this other type of work that I'm like oh my gosh I gotta run the other way <laughs> balance it out well and sometimes the most open and enthusiastic and passionate of us need to learn to set those boundaries, protect yourself. It also comes with knowing your value, you know, who you lend your voice to, whether you're talking earlier about sponsors, whether talking about your work is valuable. And so whoever you choose to share that with has to like be worth it basically. So all that's kind of wrapped up in that level of discernment that you have to learn. So yeah, I'm humbled. I'm honored. I really appreciate that. Where can people find you in your work, whether it's Temptress, Truffles, or Fruiting Bodies podcast, where can people connect? 
Um, people connect with me online. Uh, best, the first ways are Instagram. And so my IG is um, Temptress Truffles, one word, obviously, because that's Instagram. And then uh, you can look on there for like anything with like the outdoors, mushroom, arts, dogs. I love sugar. It's the way to my heart. Sweets <laughs> are the way to my heart. You thought mushrooms were? Uh-uh. Nope, 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 nope. Um, sugar. And then uh, also Fruiting Bodies Collective. Fruiting Bodies Co. is our um, handle on Instagram. And we do have a website as well as Fruiting Bodies Collective. And go on there. Look, we have some fun things going on. And since we are doing in action and in a project right now, I highly recommend you guys go because um, we're really trying to uh, make things happen right now. And so go and look on there. And then also make sure that you follow some other like black and brown foragers or people in areas that you and skills that you want to learn. There's so many things I want to do. I'm a hobby host, like my other little hashtag. I want to do all the things. And sometimes you got to live vicariously through other people and not do them yourself. And so the best way to do that. It just do a nice little like hashtag search of something that you want to look at or do. And, and if you see somebody who's black or brown in that space or marginalized, like follow them, tell them that their stuff looks good because a compliment does so good. It feels so good to get like a tiny little compliment. So do that for me, follow us, but also do that. And it doesn't cost you anything to share that work, spread that work far and wide and hey, if you're interested in it, maybe even offer to pay for their expertise in teaching you that and then share it with the world. I know these are mind-blowing concepts of how to support people <laughs> that are historically downtrodden in the society. Uh, so yes, all really, really important information. And I do highly recommend people go listen to your podcast because the issues, I mean, we talked about were getting to kind of some of the basics really compared to what you guys dive into with a diverse set of voices, people who are so much better researched than myself in talking about this. And it's really educational. I mean, it's a service that we can educate ourselves on what is a very complicated landscape with layers and layers of history and issues. So I, I love what you guys are putting out there. Thank you for telling us where to find you. Encourage everyone to go. To wrap things up, I'll ask you the three questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And the first one is usually one of the most challenging, but also the most fun. And that's a mushroom or fungus that you love and why that you want to share with us. And feel free to pick more than one, however many you want to choose, but a mushroom or fungus you love and why. Um, it's sparathus and a cauliflower mushroom for y'all. And that's because it's gorgeous. It like smells like so good when you have a fresh pick. Oh my gosh. It was my mom's favorite mushroom and the one that we connected on and she is not a was not a forager in any kind of way. <laughs> and so for somebody like her born in the early 40s in Louisiana to be like, oh, this is something special about this. That's that I was like, yeah, there really is something special about this one beyond the way it, it looks, obviously. It, it's like an egg noodle substitute, lovely texture, not slimy. I'm in. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know mushrooms or like mushrooms that much, it must be even more kind of out there. You're bringing her this like brain looking cauliflower and she ended up loving it. So yeah, I just found my first one this year. Terrific, terrific mushroom. I can't wait to find more and like play around with cooking them and all that. 
Oh yeah. And then a big broad general question, and we've probably hit on already, but you know, what has this relationship you've developed with Queendom Fungi brought to your life? Lessons it's taught you, perspectives it's offered, maybe whole disciplines of spirituality you've discovered. But what has this relationship brought to your life? Um, this relationship has brought so much connection to my life in a way that I didn't think would happen. And uh, that is like through my natural dying with mushroom dying. I'm like, whoa, I have a whole entire like community of people who is like just geeks about mushroom dying, finding like Dyer's polypore. And then I have my whole community who are like, only into like cooking things with mushrooms. And then I have, it's just like mushrooms have taught me um, connection and the queendom has taught me like the support of those different connections and has taught me that sometimes those connections have to like kind of die off for a few years or some time and needs to go like away and be dormant and then come back when it's stronger and healthier that's what the kingdom, a queendom of mushroom has definitely taught me. And it is continuously teaching me for sure. And I love that analogy. And I'm waiting for someone to write some kind of scientific abstract or paper about how human relationships are like a mycelium. Because we all know that analogy, like social media and networks of people you interact with. I mean, there's so much there. So I love oh, that. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and then, you know, as our society moves forward, especially Western European society, we're kind of just having this shroom boom, people are discovering mushrooms and fungi. What are your highest aspirations for how that can benefit our society in the coming years as we learn more and more and more and more people become mushroom people? Yeah, as more and more people become mushroom people, we need to, once again, constantly remember where the mushrooms came from, not them as a entity on their own, where it's just this novel item, this novel medicine, this just thing. We need to remember that, hey, that everything that we're doing surrounding um, mycology, I will say, or, or just mushrooms, since people understand mushrooms, there's, there's so much depth to it. And you can, you can, you know, dabble as knowledge you want and, and like, hey, just be a myco artist and draw pictures of mushrooms and everything and, and do that. But also, and that's fun, but also remember that, hey, in these next few years, there's some trends that are going to be happening. And there's some things that are going to be big that are happening within mycology and mushrooms. And with these coming around, use your eyes to like think in your mind to think, why is this all of a sudden happening in this way right now? Is it something that's going to further number one, or hurt the environment where mushrooms originally came from, which is like the forest and the lands? Or is this something that's going to become novel that we're not going to, once again, appreciate once again, where it came from and just treat it as once again, like this easy, quick pill, like the, like the mushroom coffees and the mushroom this and treat it like an item. All these things are coming up now with, with mycology and mushrooms. So we're going to have to like really kind of step back and look because it's not that these things are all of a sudden happening, but they've been here this whole time. And so we got to think, why didn't I notice this before? Is it because somebody cool is bringing it? Is it because why do I get more into it? I hope that's what people in the future, like constantly 
Yeah. Bring it back to like, for me, bring it back to the woods, bring it back to, you know, mushrooms grow more than the woods. Mushrooms and fungi are everywhere. But for me personally, I always think of mushrooms, woods and fairy land, but like always remember like where it came from and what people have to do to get it to be in that form. Because it's a lot, even with growing, even with cultivating mushrooms, like buy your mushroom, mushrooms have energy. I'm not going to get too woo woo-y, but like, if your vegetables are growing on a on a mean vegetable farmer's farm, hmm, they may not be that tasty. And same with everything else in the wild. Absolutely. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that 100, 100%. Actually, I don't believe that. I know that. I know it. And so, yeah, stay grounded in these principles of reciprocity, honoring where things come from. And what's encouraging is I think this is one of the most conscientious communities uh, in terms of people being on the lookout for this kind of stuff, exercising discernment. So I'm really hopeful that we'll navigate some of these challenges as mushrooms become more popular and adhere to like core grounded principles, guided by our conscience, all that good stuff more moving forward. And as long as more of us, uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of faith in that. Well, Elon, thank you so much for, again, for coming on the podcast, sharing your perspectives and information. I love hearing you speak. So I just, it was an honor to be able to sit down and speak with you like this. Thank you. Anytime, anytime. I appreciate you having me. Once again, I love it. I love it. Just keep on, keep it on you guys. Keep on sharing and uplifting people.